Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today we are discussing a grab bag of different things. We're going to try something different. Uh, We have a bunch of little topics, but nothing that felt like a whole episode. So we're going to try to bounce from thing to thing. Uh, we've tried to do this in the past, and we it, we failed every time because yeah, it always ends up just being two long topics again because we can't shut up. Well, once we start talking about something, we can't stop. Yeah. So, <laughs> but we're gonna try to bounce around here. I guess if we settle on something that's interesting enough to stay on it, then I guess that's a good sign, anyways. First of all, a, a little bit of follow up. Uh, yeah. We have some some of that this week um, or this episode since we're not weekly really, uh, but. Uh, uh, self-driving cars, we had talked about recently the Uber accident that led to a fatality, and uh, there's been a little bit more information about that. Right. We were waiting for the NTSB, the uh, National Transportation Safety Board, to release their report, and they finally did. So I didn't read the whole report, but I did read some coverage of it, and uh, you did too, right, John? So uh, I think we can update a few things there. One uh, finding, uh, which Volvo was happy, I think, about, was that uh, they they confirmed that Volvo's built-in braking technology was uh, disabled so that Uber's uh, software was the thing that was making the calls. So Volvo's been touting that because they want everyone to continue buying their cars, I think. Yeah, so they're off the hook. Uh, yeah. yeah, so, you know, good for them, I guess. Um, uh, but it really did get into the nitty-gritty of what had gone wrong where uh, this... Uh, a woman who was walking a bicycle ended up getting hit by this car. And uh, it does seem that the software did uh, get information from the sensors about her and did, in fact, think that she was something. She th- they thought she was an object at first, and then it later identified the bicycle. But it never guessed the bicycle's trajectory correctly. It kept making some faulty assumptions about the direction the bicycle was going in. Um, and if you guys have seen the video, it's pretty clear the, to a human eye that the bicycle is, is crossing the street, um, uh, perpendicular to the, you know, flow of traffic. Absolutely. Uh, but the computer did not get that for whatever complicated reasons. And, uh, as a result, it did not stop the car, uh, or alert the, uh, the human driver. In addition, there was some talk about, uh, that would maybe let the the human in the vehicle off the hook a bit, right? I mean, the, the claim is that uh, she was not looking down at her phone per se, but was actually looking down at some of the the readouts in the car that are giving her information. Right, that was the claim in the in the report. So I don't know how you verify that, um, but if you saw the video, it did look kind of suspicious that the driver was uh, had her eyes down at the moment uh, just before the crash, um, but. It does appear, at least from the report, that she was looking at the instrument panel, um, which is you know part of her job. But if Volvo's off the hook, and if the driver's off the hook, then it pretty much falls squarely on Uber's algorithm. Plus, you know, to some extent, the victim here also was maybe putting themselves a little bit in danger. I, I think also wasn't there like a toxicology report that showed that they had. Yes, I mean, the victim was, uh, you know, a homeless woman, and apparently they found, you know, methamphetamine and and marijuana in her body, but that's just, you know, not surprising given her demographic. I don't think that means she was high or anything when she did it. Uh, Now, what she did was definitely jaywalking, um, but I think the the concern is that uh, a human driver would not have made this mistake, right? 
Right, exactly. Um, so, I mean, that's a, I mean, even if it's not the wisest thing to cross the street in a random place at night, uh, it's still, you know, an actual human could probably avoid it. Yeah, I think in, because we have humans driving cars now and that's the culture we're starting from, we're going to have to have uh, self-driving cars that in, in most cases perform uh, as well as a human. And I think that's what's sort of disturbing about this one. Uh, not that there will not be edge cases where in, you know, crazy inclement weather or something like that, uh, the the self-driving car crashes. Of course, that will happen. But we expect that in a situation where a human would have broke, that the car also will break. And, you know, this just doesn't look that good for Uber in terms of their st- their strategy of long-term uh, owning their own self-driving car technology. Uh, because this does create a kind of legal um, proof that they had a, a software design flaw in their design, you know, that, that, that led to this happening. And so uh, for them to now prove uh, that their technology is safe is going to be that much harder. They're going to have to really go uh, the extra mile to show that whatever problems uh, caused this were ferreted out and, repl- you know, uh, fixed. Uh, they have stopped completely uh, testing in Arizona, and they are going back to testing in Pittsburgh, where they have their uh, research facility um, near uh, Carnegie Mellon there. So at this point, they have not given up on developing, but my sort of you know armchair prediction is that this increases the likelihood, in my opinion, of the ultimate result uh, being that Uber uh, licenses self-driving technology from one of the other players in the field, whether Waymo or... By the way, was this... Because uh, I, I didn't look at the story super closely. Mm-hmm. Is the information that we're getting now about the cause of the accident, is that all self-reported by Uber, basically? No, this is the uh, National Transportation Safety Board, their report. So uh, Uber did release a whole bunch of stuff, uh, which we covered in our earlier uh, piece about this. But this is confirmation that... as a as far as we can tell, they told the truth. This is kind of a new legal area, right? To have sort of a third party go in and investigate what happened with an algorithm uh, during the occurrence of an accident, right? And trying to do sort of forensically determine that. Uh, I mean, that's a relatively new area that would probably is going to be exploding in size. Yeah. So this has happened a few times with Tesla crashes, um, yeah. w- which are, of course, caused by people misusing the autopilot feature, not caused by Tesla's being bad cars or something. Um, but they seem to encourage a, uh, uh, a cavalier attitude and, uh, some people have died as a result of that. So NTSB has done this a few times before. And I think it's actually not too different from what the aviation authority does when a plane crashes, mm-hmm. right? Cause they have black boxes in planes and have for years. And in fact, most planes are also automated, uh, to a large extent these days. So, uh, they are looking at very similar information to determine, you know, was it pilot error? Was it automation error? Was it a bird in the engine or whatever? And I think this is derived from that, uh, and is not that different from, from what, um, NTSB normally does, which is looking at, you know, whether design flaws in a car, such as, you know, when Toyota had the, um, sticky accelerator pedals, right, remember right. they had a big recall. Well, that was the NTSB who was, you know, I, I, investigating that sort of thing, but it is different. I, well, I'm alluding to a broader context though, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. we're deploying AI in serious situations, including driving of cars, but right. also other areas and 
you know, just as you would go in and try to determine the like intent and behavior and culpability of the human actors, now you have to determine the intent and culpability of an algorithm that requires a fair amount of expertise in computer science knowledge to decipher. So I just think that that's an interesting area and, and we'll probably see a lot of high profile cases, you know, working around. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think this is something um, very new. Uh, cars are kind of unique in that they've always been really complex engineering feats. So even though they weren't literal black boxes, they're, they have many moving parts, literally, and they're quite complex. Well, you said black box with regard to plane, but you mean black box algorithm uh, where you... Because like, there's I'm two now, meanings here. Yeah, yeah, I'm now using that term in two ways. So a black box on a plane is just literally a a recorder that records right, all okay. the data. That's, but in this sense, I mean like a black box, like an algorithm where you're, it's inscrutable from the outside. Yeah. It's so mathematically complex, you can't exactly know what it's doing, even though you can look at its code. Um, but uh, uh, the kinds of machine learning that we're using to do self-driving cars are that second kind of black box, the, the kind where they're inscrutable in some ways. Now, I'm sure they publish a lot of their reasoning um, in some human-readable format, but that's also that's coded into them by some humans, so right. it has bias potentially, or or it leaves things out potentially, or something. So that's a big question of how do they actually? I don't know what the technical details are of how they actually do this analysis. Are they looking only at physical factors? Are they looking at readouts from the machine? Are those readouts, you know, tamperable by the company? Uh, you know, you also have to keep in mind like the diesel scandal of Volkswagen a couple of years ago where they discovered that, you know, they were using the computers in the car to real time change the performance of the car whenever they detected a tester, which, you know, a government tester, which they, got, right, which okay. they detected yeah, yeah. in a very surreptitious cheating. way. So that was straight up cheating, right? Because the car didn't perform that way on the road. It only performed that way under test circumstances, you know, and that was very uh, sneaky of them. And they got uh, fined a huge fine as a result of that. So there's definitely some precedent for our authorities, particularly cars are unique just because they are so complex. So they're not literally black boxes the way that these algorithms are, but they just are are big, chaotic mechanical systems that are already it's already difficult to determine like what went wrong. So I think the NTSB is probably in a good position to do this, but I would imagine there are many other regulatory authorities who are going to soon have to deal with this thing we're talking about of like something went wrong. We need to determine who's at fault. One of the players is a very inscrutable algorithm and, you know, we're almost at the mercy of the people who made it to get information out from it. Right. The regulatory authorities are going to have to be granted access to what may be proprietary technology right. that in some cases companies might be a little ornery about even giving access to. Well, it might even be not human understandable. And then at that point, you're you're reliant on the company itself to do sort of some kind of analysis. I'm fairly confident right? that even with these uh, algorithms that are, that are trained and, and a little bit harder to put together that an explanation can be concocted if you have the actual programmers and creators of the algorithm in the room. But sure. those people work for the company that are not necessarily interested in sharing that knowledge. Plus, it's if it's proprietary, uh, there may be concerns about their, you know, trade secrets getting out. So, I mean, it's complicated. Yeah. So but anyway, anyways. that's the follow up that we have. And I think the correct answer is it is complicated. And if I were a regulator right now, I'd be trying to learn a whole lot about <laughs> how this stuff works. A lot of work for lawyers and computer scientists as usual. Yep. 
Um, so I wanted to talk about uh, David Deutsch uh, and his book, uh, The Beginning of Infinity. Yeah. Which uh, I, I got to say, I did not end up reading the entire book. And that's because the reason I picked up the book was that uh, I was interested in his thoughts upon AI. And that's really not a book about AI. Uh, it, although it is related. I mean, it's it's really, I guess you'd call it a philosophy of science book, you know, mm -hmm. that's talking about how we know what we know and uh, how progress is made and how knowledge is created. And of course, things, things are, would be relevant to a super intelligent AI. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I, I read as much as I could of it. I also, uh, with the help of a, a listener, John Tillengast, that I've been having a conversation with on Facebook about this issue, um, was pointed to a couple videos and podcasts and things that were more directly have his thoughts on AI. Uh, the reason this came up is that he is critical of the uh, sort of scary uh, AI risk argument where, you know, right. we, we are supposed to be scared of a super intelligent AI in the near future that might very rapidly increase in capability and take over the world and endanger all of human life. That's right. the argument that I'm sure our listeners have heard. Um, he, he's one of many critics of this argument. Oh, and this relates to our coverage earlier of uh, Pinker's exactly. uh, article um, sort of dismissing those claims. And, and uh, Tillinghast pointed out that Pinker seems to be sort of cribbing some of his ideas from Deutsch even. Yeah, yeah. And so one of Deutsch's points that is, I think, a little relevant is he, and actually relates to what we were just talking about, black boxes. So Deutsch's worldview is that the world, and he gets to this through sort of a long uh, philosophical discussion that I won't attempt to paraphrase, but his belief is that the world is fundamentally explicable mm -hmm. and that there's a certain threshold of intelligence you could say humans are past that threshold mm -hmm. um and other animals and living things are not but humans are at a level that they're they have become what he would call universal explainers they are capable of uh through the process of conjecture and criticism it creating knowledge and explaining the world around them mm -hmm. and the idea is that there's nothing that's fundamentally inexplicable so even, you know, something like a black box algorithm, there is an explanation that can be given for it, especially if it was created by humans, that explanation must exist. Mm -hmm. um, and it all the way it relates to AI is that, uh, you know, it's common when you're talking about aliens in science fiction yeah. or uh, in even more realistic alien scenarios that people might posit or in these artificial intelligence scenarios that you would talk about an intelligence that was analogous uh, to us the way we are to ants. Right. Right? So ants can not possibly understand or explain us, right? We're sort of well beyond their capacity to, right. to understand. And they even appear to sort of ignore us even as we interact with them. Like they almost don't seem to... to to be able to ascertain us as a thing distinct from the world. Exactly. So, so yeah. Deutsch's worldview is that you know, there's basically a simple, a single threshold, yeah. right, of intelligence that you can cross. And once you have these certain tools, and this kind of relates to ideas of like, like Turing's ideas of like universal computation, right? And so on that, there's basically just one way of processing knowledge. And, you know, humans are um, of that certain threshold where they can do that. Right. And obviously, any advanced alien or uh, intelligent AI would be of that level. But there's no fundamental difference uh, between us and a what a theoretical smarter being there's nothing that they would know that they wouldn't be able to explain to us or that we wouldn't be able to understand uh given the right explanation uh-huh um however i don't i think that totally leaves open the possibility that they might 
still have much more knowledge than us and might process things a lot more quickly and efficiently. Right. So I don't think that that worldview actually says that there can't be a big asymmetry between, you know, two entities, you know, one of which has access to a great deal more knowledge than the other and is able to access that knowledge much more quickly. Well, at the very least, there is already great asymmetries among humans. Yeah, correct. And that, you know, so and I, and I think it's probably true that, you know, on some fundamental level, you know, maybe every human is capable of understanding things that any other human is capable of understanding. It just might take certain humans thousands of years and uh, effort to get there. Yeah. Um, I'm not, you know, again, I, I'm, this is not my worldview, but this is sort of the worldview of his book. Uh-huh. Um, I'm sympathetic to it. If you actually read the book, he gets there, I think, through a very convincing way. And it's more of a, the thing is, it's more of a philosophical point than anything. I don't think it actually would rule out the possibility that a dangerous AI would exist. Sure. Um, it just means that this whole idea, I think, you know, it, it's sort of this whole idea that something might be fundamentally unexplainable. You know, and and it is something that I think he would consider sort of magical thinking. I right? see, right? Um, but you know, fundamentally unexplainable and practically unexplainable are two different things, right? And that's kind of what I was thinking is that when I talk about a black box, I certainly don't mean that it's fundamentally unexplainable. I only mean that it's hard to explain uh, from the information that you have. Yeah, uh, and that just approaching it with different information would probably make it explicable. Um, but you may not have that information. Yeah, and that yeah. may not be available to you in a, in a you know um, in a particular circumstance. So I mean, it's a really interesting book, and these are from just a philosophy perspective. These are interesting ideas. I would encourage people to read it for themselves. I'm not going to really even try to summarize it that much. But that's that was my grasp of of that point about AI. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other few other points that he makes that I've heard other places. He talks about intelligence, augmentation, evening the playing field, mm-hmm. which um, sort of is well understood in this area. You know, obviously, if we have the ability to augment humans with implants or something so that we're upgrading ourselves as fast as our machines are upgrading, then there's not really a problem with machines, right? I mean, this is fundamentally like Kurzweil's traditional point about uh, the dangers of AI is that if we just essentially we will merge with it so there's no difference so there's no concern right right so he echoes some of those points but none of those are exactly new um and he makes some other points that i think are were familiar to me as just part of the general uh set of ideas that are argue against this ai risk concern mm-hmm. um that i that i think are valid uh and interesting but again not necessarily new there was though and this is the main thing i want to talk about right now um implied by some of the things that he wrote to me a different counter argument that as far as i could tell he wasn't actually making Mm -hmm. um but something that he could have been saying about why you know nick bostrom and eliezer yukowskis and these people's fears about super intelligent ai taking over maybe are not justified right and so so here's the argument that and this is a rough draft version of what i imagine he could say but isn't even really saying right because he said what he, one of the things that he talks about um, is sort of the connection between morals and what's right and wrong uh, to what is actually true and good and also the progress of knowledge, right? He sort of connects all of those things that you don't necessarily always think of as connected. And he specifically references another philosopher, Jacob Bronowski, 
And and basically the point is this: in order to be successful at creating knowledge, okay, at advancing in society, creating better and better explanations, and going through this process of conjecturing theories and then subjecting them to criticism until you find the best explanation and then revising that over time, this whole process mm-hmm. of scientific advancement. That requires actually like embracing certain values, right? Like openness to change, like valuing truth, you know, tolerance to new ideas, openness of debate, distrust of dogmatism and authority. All these things like tend, I mean, you tend to not be able to make progress in knowledge in societies unless you have some of these other values. That's the theory. Well, that. I'm highly skeptical of that claim. That seems to me. Okay, like so what what is your first response to my that? My first response to that is perhaps in some extremely domain specific way, but not in any way that feels like it generalizes. Those values feel super contingent to me, even within a culture. Like you might be very open along one narrow axis and and not promote openness elsewhere. But like in a given society, right? Uh huh. If they want to progress in artificial intelligence then at least within that domain, they're going to need to be open to new ideas and to change and to discussion and right. to criticism sure. or else they're not going to progress within that domain. So yeah, if they firewall off two domains, you know, yeah. and to some extent you can, you know, main that sort of like schizophrenic culture, you know, where you're, you're very innovative and open in one area and not in another. I mean, I'm not saying... Th- right, I guess I'm possible. just not sure that that r- makes your culture very schizophrenic. I would argue most cultures are just like that normally and that they are just much more open. Like, you know, here in the United States, we're very open in terms of uh, our, you know, speech freedoms and we're also very closed off in terms of having some of the most uh, restrictive intellectual property law in the world, right? I mean, that's just one example that pops in my head it might not be the best example but clearly uh the like lax intellectual property regime in china has contributed to its technical progress uh, and clearly they value openness on that axis and it's it's contributing to their progress there at the same time it has not bled over in any meaningful way to like political openness or speech openness or anything like that i don't just don't think the things are that related i think like cultures have a wide capacity to just make different values in different domains okay but so tie this into ai though because again so the the theory is that so if you have an ai that has to make progress really rapidly right right it's going to take over the world so maybe it's running um way faster than we are it's it's in a box in a lab somewhere um they leave it on overnight and you know it's thousands of years for the ai or whatever the like time scales are right and so it's learning and it's thinking about things and it's like it you know it can't be super dogmatic if it's going to progress in certain domains right but maybe it's you know dogmatic and closed-minded in other ways sure i mean yeah i think that's possible i just don't see any reason why it would tend to extend any of those particular things outside of those domains i mean it might it just might as easily not i think one could say without it being sounding too far-fetched that if like for example uh uh, like if a society like china or the u.s was more tolerant of dissent say or whatever than it is currently Mm -hmm. that that might lead to i mean it doesn't mean they're not making progress already it just means they might make even faster progress if they were adopt to adopt the even more pure form and universal form of these well what i would be comfortable positing is that if a country like china were more open to dissent it would have faster progress in the realm of politics they would experience more change in the realm of politics than they experience now that I'm comfortable with. I don't, 
I don't see how your openness uh, of, to dissent in, in politics has any bearing on, say, your technological progress. Well, because all those things are intimately connected in so many ways. I mean, you know, these domains are not perfectly discreet. Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, I think you're right that they are, they, that they touch each other in many ways, but I think it's hard actually to disentangle all the ways they touch each other and to pr- predict the results. It just seems to me like the actual lived experience of the world uh, makes it makes me think that these kinds of values are super contingent and super uh, domain specific uh, in their biggest effects, and that all those other effects are chaotic and hard to trace and possibly small. Um, so I don't know. I'm skeptical of the claim, but that's all. I mean, I'm just okay. Skeptical. Well, well, let yeah. me f- let me sort of finish. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to derail you too much. Finish the yeah. idea, which is again not my idea, just something that I sort of read into Deutsch's writing. So, right. So that idea is in there. Um, as I said, it the way it relates to AI is that part of the argument for dangerous AI is this orthogonality thesis, which I've mentioned many times before, which right. is the idea that fundamentally. Uh, goals that a system might have and whether those goals are moral or not by our standards um, are completely orthogonal or independent of uh, the intelligence and the capabilities of that system. So you can pair any goal with any skill set um, or, right. a- or any ability to achieve that goal. Um, this worldview would imply a sort of convergent set of moral values that in order to make progress at the intelligence side, at the gaining of knowledge, you would also probably have to have certain values that might imply a higher standard of morality along certain metrics, like the ones we're talking about, tolerance of dissent, openness to change, distrust of dogmatism, and so on. Right. So that would mean that a super powerful AI might be more likely than not to be a little more benevolent, which would be a good thing if that were true. Uh, so that's, I, to me, that's a possible argument. Right, right. It's possible, basically, that the orthogonality, orthogonality thesis is wrong. Exactly. And that, in fact... Uh, you do need some base level morality uh, in order to sort of be intelligent, essentially, because that's almost like a prerequisite set of values. And, you know, maybe that is true. And if you look at the variety of human morality in the world, right, you get an idea that there's a pretty large range mm-hmm. of moral positions that one can take based on one's circumstance, but that there still are a few very close to absolute moral things for the whole species, you know, norms around death, for example, are pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are a, a large number of things that are, that are not quite that consistent, but still, you know, fairly consistent. Uh, and you might imagine that, that just statistical likelihood of any AI um, that is, that is intelligent in that way would be that it would, share some of those values. And I I can buy that, even though I'm somewhat skeptical of the claim that, for example, a radical openness to um, trying new technological solutions to problems uh, implies any radical openness elsewhere. (laughs) 
uh, in terms of goal structures or yeah. or anything else. I'm not sure that that, well, that it, I buy that. And this is not a rigor, rigorously constructed argument. I'm interested in sort of like right. pursuing it further. But it's yeah, it, it's it's, interesting. A, it's, a, it's a kind of an argument that I wish Deutsch made explicitly because he could probably make it better. And it seems to follow from his ideas. But as far as I know, he hasn't actually made this argument. If someone else knows where a similar argument has been made in like a more like cohesive fashion, I'd like to know because it you know it does attack a really core part of the the AI concern. If right. The orthogonality thesis is wrong. Right. Um, let's move on. Uh, so a little bit of follow-up on uh, cryptocurrency being used by governments, right? We yeah, have- there was some news with this recently where we talked last time about Venezuela trying to launch um, a cryptocurrency, but recently the Marshall Islands, which are a small nation, uh, has actually done it. They used to use the U.S. dollar. They didn't have their own currency before, uh, but they have now launched a cryptocurrency. And I actually have to check on this. I'm not sure whether it's a pre-mined or whether it has a mining network. I, I didn't look. but uh, So I'm not sure whether we would classify it as really a digital currency or a true crypto. But at, at any rate, they are a country that is not under sanction, not, you know, a, a internationally recognized sort of like legals quote-unquote good country um and they have been they're now the first country with that status to do this so it's going to actually force banks to deal with it and come up with a way to take it and everything so it's something of a milestone movement uh, moment for uh, those who think that crypto is going to get wide uh acceptance um and it'll be interesting to see how that goes um yeah so that's interesting we'll we'll uh, continue to, to keep up on stories like that um uh, we had so uh, that's it for follow up, right? But we had a bunch of other small topics we wanted to touch upon. Um, right. Well, we did post uh, asking you guys to tell us what to talk about this uh, this time, and we got some interesting responses back. So I think some of this is in response to that, right? Yeah, yeah. We got some suggestions on on Twitter and Facebook for our listeners. Thank you to anybody who responded to that about what we might talk about today. And some of them are maybe pointing at something that's too big. <laughs> Uh, yes. That by the time we we saw it, you know, we weren't really able to prep for it. But some of these, I think, can be addressed maybe quickly or at so, least. So if you're the, the person who suggested like energy or space, like those are things we're interested in. But I think neither of us is really like a domain expert on them, and we're going to have to do some research or find a guest or something. Those are right. Those are in our mind. Thank you for those suggestions, but it's not going to be today. Yeah. So among the things that were suggested by listeners was a uh, a paper that was I think by a few people, but uh, the the primary author that we were directed towards was a guy named Miles Brundage, who works at the Future of uh, Humanity Institute at Oxford, which uh, asks a lot of these big questions about, uh, you know, existential risk and safety issues regarding technology. Um, Specifically about malicious use of AI. So it's particularly around not the the safety of a self-running AI, but the the negative things that humans could do with AI. Right. That was the subject of this particular paper. This paper, yeah. And I actually think that that is a really good topic maybe for a full episode later. Yes. uh, Because, you know, we've touched upon that, but it is definitely a different lens to think about AI, not through the sort of more far-out abstract ideas of what happens if the AI becomes, you know, like, like independent and takes over, but more just through the lens of what can really bad human actors do with right. this stuff imagine a villain with an ai what does he do it's a little bit like you know nuclear risk yeah um, theory but uh an ai obviously does give you different 
options for creating havoc. And it feels like much more closer and present concerns to the world we're currently in. So well, I think in that well, and respect, it doesn't it doesn't involve you know uh, goal shifting and uh, uh, you dodge some of these philosophical questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that we were just steeped in. So, uh, so I did like yeah. skim over this thing. I haven't read it carefully yet. This is a, we'll put a link to it. It's a pretty cool uh, PDF because it's got like a executive summary where you can sort of get an overview of what they're going to talk about. And then it's very well organized. Um, By the way, I should say that the listener that shared this with us, at least on Twitter is called negative splits. Okay. Thanks. So, negative splits. Yeah. So I, I, so I just wanted to give them credit for that. Um, it, it has a lot of things that, that we've touched on before. It also has a nice frame. So maybe we'll, we will come back to it and use, use its frame as like a, a an episode uh, outline. But I wanted to bring up one thing from it that I just, I had not thought of before and was genuinely new to me and jumped out. And it was in a list of uh, things, basically ways you could use an AI to do various kinds of hacking that are already done. So social engineering and things like that could be automated. But in that list, at the bottom of the list, there was this idea that I hadn't hadn't thought of, which is every company's algorithm after it's been trained on all of our data or whatever. I mean, we talked about this the other week is itself like a kind of, you know, it's like a black box trade secret kind of thing. That algorithm, it does a thing. And that's like the central value of the company, whether it's like Facebook or Google or whatever company it is. Right. And you could, as, as, as a, uh, as a thief with a machine learning tool, you could rig up something that puts input into this algorithm that somebody else owns, grabs the output, repeats, 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 repeats that process until you are able to derive their algorithm from just using their service from, right? In other words, the actual algorithm is hidden under the hood, but by trying inputs and measuring outputs, you can kind of do a kind of automated science on the rival algorithm. Well, that's how the algorithm got built in the first place, right? Is it was some kind of machine learning algorithm probably that had been, uh, getting data in and then making predictions, then getting more data in and being corrected until it became this algorithm, right? And then so you're using the exact same process of just feeding it dummy data and then seeing what it uh, spits out to basically reverse engineer what it's doing in there. Um, So that's a way of almost like stealing the algorithm right out of a centralized, you know, company or project uh, without ever accessing their code or their data directly. Yeah, it's like tr- applying machine learning to the product of another machine learning process. In order to reverse engineer what Yeah, it, which yeah. is weird. I'm not uh, <laughs> sure exactly of the, all the technical details, but it is an interesting, fascinating idea. Yeah, because even if it's like not at a full level of resolution, even if it's sort of a, a shoddier version of the, the algorithm, it still should be like good enough to be useful in many cases. And you could jumpstart, um, you know, you could jumpstart a project by basically stealing from somebody else until you get to a certain point. I mean, the uses that I think of, though, are not theft necessarily. Um, and I, I don't know what, how, what I didn't read that part of the paper where you. Well, I'm, I'm using theft in a sort of glib way, too, because, I mean, obviously you and I have pretty extreme views sure. about intellectual property. You're certainly not like sneaking into the Facebook office and copying their algorithm. It's not theft on that level. Yeah, yeah. But but setting aside d- different definitions of what what theft means, right, uh, right. Like my my mind first goes. I mean, 
there are situations where people deal with algorithms in a relatively high stakes way, say for their business, like SEO is like a good example. Sure. Um, where, you know, people want to be optimized for Google search, but they don't know exactly how Google search works. They're sort of just inferring it from, again, the inputs and outputs. Right. But it's, you know, that process, um, I assume, is mostly human-driven at the moment, although I don't know for sure. Well, but I'm sure they do a lot of data generation in an automated way, right? But, but, yeah, if it's really critical to your business to have a good search ranking, for example, um, then you could automate part of the process of just sort of trying to deduce how Google's algorithm works by like feeding it tons of uh, just sort of like random data and website data and seeing how it handles it. And then again, reverse engineer that for just the benefit of, you know, gaming the algorithm just for your own business success, which is, you know, less nefarious use, but. Well, it becomes like a kind of, you know, it's part of that arms race that Google's always dealing with then. Yeah. SEO people trying to trick their algorithm and their algorithm trying to trick the SEO people. But then at a certain point, couldn't you just extract Google's search engine this way? Uh, if, if they are not careful about what they expose, I mean, imagine Google thinks about this and they probably expose answers in such a way it makes it hard. But, um, if you don't design with this in mind, it seems like maybe you could take that further and you could actually sort of steal their secret sauce um, again, again, maybe in a black box mirror where you don't know exactly what it is you've got, but nonetheless, where you can get a result that's similar to the thing. Yeah. I, I mean, when, off. when you do this, I don't know that you, I mean, I'm sure you, like you said, you don't end up with a perfect copy. Uh, you probably end up with something that produces similar outputs based on similar inputs, but so probably internally is quite different. So I don't, well, I think the point they were making here is that the, it might not be that different, right? I mean, it might be different in terms of a level of complexity, perhaps. Right. But that uh, it might be possible um, to actually extract something that's mathematically useful this way. That's, you know, close enough, essentially. Okay. Uh, which, I mean, I don't know if that's true. But if that's true, then it gets interesting, basically. Because then you could... Then you have a situation where, like, uh, we're kind of going back to the old days of software, uh, the old days of the web... Where like before there was hypertext processing, right? Uh, when all web pages were just HTML, in order to see a web page, you had to download the entire code of it. That was just how the web worked at first. So there was like no way if I wrote a web page, there was no way for me to prevent you from downloading my code and reusing it any way you wanted. And you know, arguably that was a good feature of the old web. It was a way that made it yeah. open and innovative. Um, but it also was perhaps a disincentive to some people to build certain kinds of businesses or something. I don't know, whatever. I'm no good at arguing for intellectual property, but anyway, uh, it, it was arguably a good thing. It was a feature of the technology at the time. And then, uh, in order to make better websites, we had hypertext processing, which had the result of hiding from you a lot of the, uh, the most interesting code and only showing you the display stuff. Um, this sort of goes back to that in a way because maybe it's starting to expose uh, obliquely uh, some of the inner workings that are now hidden on the server. Um, so maybe we're, you know, we're talking about like the algorithm that's driving the decision, not like the PHP that's writing the web page, but it's sort of a similar concept. It's almost like if you could suck the processing out of a, a WordPress site by just looking at the page or by looking at every page or having your computer look at every page and then figuring it out, you know? 
Um, you know what another use for this would be, what? which is more nefarious, what? is other places where you might have algorithms that you could feed inputs to and get outputs, although it, it might be difficult to do this on a large scale are things like fraud alerts yep um or basically like algorithms that are there to detect criminal activity right obviously a criminal will be very interested in knowing how those work and how to evade them right and so if you could set up you know an ai somewhere that sort of like tried to deduce how those work by feeding a bunch of inputs and right so since those outputs, don't have public output like they don't have an api or something where you can easily it would be more difficult you'd I have to set up a whole bunch of like fake accounts i guess and then use the accounts to generate the data, you know, try yeah. and then see which, which accounts get fraud alerts when you do what. And then, you know, but it seems like you could do it. It does seem like, you know, a concerted effort could do that. And then they'd have an advantage over the fraud alert system where they could know, okay, well, don't do these things, do these things. You're less likely to get caught. And of course it's an arms race. They'll catch up eventually. Right. Right. But, but you could stay a, a step ahead of them that way. But I mean, yeah, and it, and it may not be totally practical in, in sort of the that exact conception of it, but it just points to interesting things. I mean, again, yeah. I think one of the more interesting things here in general is that actually thinking about what happens with this AI stuff in the future is about an ecosystem of AIs that are in some ways interacting in this these different ways, like right. parasitic and symbiotic, almost like you can use biological ecosystem type terms to almost describe all the ways that they're going to be interacting with each other. And that is, you know, a more complex way of thinking about it than, than traditionally when we just speculate about AIs doing this or that. Right. And if you're designing AI security, that's going to be a challenging job because you're going to have to think about all the ways that other AIs might try to take advantage of your, of your service obliquely, not just in a direct attack sort of way. Um, so uh, th this is quick. Uh, I also found stumbled on something interesting actually just today. Uh, Marginal Revolution, the the blog that is primarily Tyler Cowen. Oh yeah, but also Alex Tabarrok. Alex, also Alex Tabarrok. He you know he posts way less frequently. Right. Uh, but it's his blog as well. And uh, you know I don't always agree with these guys on everything. Um, they tend to hew more to the the right than I do. But it's mm -hmm. still one of the most interesting blogs on the internet. So. Yeah, they're intellectually honest people and they're smart, so they're worth, and, worth and, reading. And it's just like constantly updated with with interesting thought nuggets. Um, so Alex Tabrock posted, uh, about, I guess a, a recent situation that happened with, with Tesla. Now, anytime we bring up Tesla and Elon Musk now, uh, <laughs> we're in this weird space where people suddenly have very strong feelings. Either they, they, they think Elon Musk is a devil or a God. But right. Like, well, based on their neither. personal feelings about Elon Musk, which are the least interesting part of the whole thing. But anyway, so as, as a character, I'm not really that interested in, in Elon Musk per se, but but the anecdote that uh, sort of Alex Tabrock shares is one in which the, the Tesla's Model 3 got a bad rating on Consumer Reports to the uh, degree that they didn't even recommend the car. Right. And it was due to uh, the braking distance being too too high. Right. right. And taking too long to brake. After hearing the critique, Tesla vowed to fix the problem in a few days. And apparently they pushed essentially just a software update that revised the braking distance, fixed the problem enough that Consumer Reports now does recommend the car. The details of that story, I don't know. I don't know why that was possible in this case. 
there's a lot of speculation that they, you know, maybe had it set up that way, the breaking distance like too long on purpose, you know, and that, you know, maybe this is not indicative of anything super large, but it does imply, you know, the, the degree to which software influences physical objects now or what, you know, Alex Tarek specifically delineates as durable goods, mm-hmm. you know, things you buy to keep. Right. You know, to the extent that those things are driven by software and can be updated after the fact and constantly revised, he says it implies that every durable good is becoming a service, which is, I think, an interesting prediction, uh, economically speaking. Yeah. And he assumes that the results of that will be, you know, basically an increase in monopoly power. One reason which would be that it increases the importance of reputation, right? If you're going to buy an expensive durable good like a car or a refrigerator from a company, then it's important for you to trust that that company will be around to continue providing updates and services and so on surrounding that product, and that would might make you less likely to take a chance on a smaller startup company. So I don't know if I buy this as a clear trend the more I've thought about it since reading the post, but it is an interesting idea. I mean, what, what are your first responses to the idea of durable goods as a service? I'm not sure if it generalizes as much as he's saying, but particularly it's interesting to me that cars have so much technology in them already uh, that we interact with that doesn't, not technology that drives the car, but, you know, your entertainment system and all of that, you know, Mm -hmm. and that stuff already I wish would get updated. Like I have only a two-year-old car and already cars that are coming out now have a much better system for like getting my phone into them and why on earth can't the computer in my car be updated with a when it's at home with a wi-fi connection or something right that seems like it should be a thing so yeah i can definitely see that there is demand for this and that people will like it if they're if the software elements in their things are upgradable this will also be good for security because uh one of the big problems with internet of things is like you know your home refrigerator or whatever has a computer in it and you never update it you know, and hackers have 10 years to figure out how to break the thing and then get into all your accounts through that back door or something, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and pretty much this is just how things are done in the software world now. So, yeah, like, yeah, so if everything can get updates um, on a regular basis, at least for security, if not for, like, massive functionality up changes, then that seems like a just a better world. But, yeah, I wonder whether it will have the effect he's saying of, like, favoring established companies over startups or... Or favoring companies that have a reputation for providing updates over companies that don't. I mean, one place that that has happened is like in cell phones, which are durable goods that you have for two years. They're hardware, and obviously they are computers at their core, so we expect them to operate more like computers have always operated. But I think those things play out in the cell phone market, so I wouldn't be surprised if they played out in a market for cars or refrigerators. Well, and we were talking earlier about how, you know, there's less and less reason to need, you know, a fancier new cell phone because like there's less in the way of tangible speed improvements and so on, things that matter. Yeah. Um, So you could see cell phones in particular moving to more of a service model where you plan to buy a phone and keep it for longer, but maybe you, you know, in addition to the, the fee you already pay for your like literal cell service, you might be paying a subscription service to the phone manufacturer 
Um, that's not really how it works now, though. I mean, all these updates tend to be free. Right. I mean, updates tend to be priced into the upfront cost of the product, and it would surprise me if that model changed uh, unless... The, the way that I would imagine that model would change would be if, if any of these platforms get to the point where they're open enough that there are third-party apps for them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you don't pay Google for updates to Android. You don't pay Apple for updates to iOS. But you do um, pay for your free-to-play games or for your Netflix subscription or for your Spotify subscription, which then run on those on top of those platforms, Right. And, uh, and on a desktop computer, it's like, you know, all the professional software, all the Adobe and Avid and that sort of thing has all gone to a subscription. That's the thing is, yeah, the reason this is a little bit plausible is that we definitely have seen software in general move heavily in the direction of service model. But not OSs. And in fact, uh, you know, other than Microsoft, nobody's still selling an OS. I mean, Windows is still sold, but basically every other OS is distributed free now, even though... They're not open source or anything. They're just, you know, if you have a Mac, you can update the OS. If you have a an Android computer or a Chromebook, you can update the OS whenever an update comes out. That's They do that because they just want you on the newest version more than they care about the incremental. They, they want you in the system and they have, uh, you know, uh, other revenue models. I mean, basically, if you, if you control the OS, which is sort of the most important point of control in right. a way, um, there's plenty of other you know, opportunities to make money. You don't really need to charge for the OS. The more important thing is just getting it in people's hands. And even Microsoft, whose business model is a little bit more to charge for the OS, at least to the manufacturers, if not to the people, even they give you point upgrades for free. So you have to pay to get onto, you know, 10, but like 10 point whatever, whatever is free. So I I feel like, yeah, I could see that um, to the extent that they keep monopolizing them, like, you know, a Samsung refrigerator only runs Samsung apps then I don't see them being a service in the sense of like you pay monthly. I see it more like Samsung packages the price of that update into the upfront cost of the refrigerator. Um, But if it's like running the same Android OS that Samsung phones run, right, then of course you might want Spotify on your fridge so that you can listen to music while you cook or something, you know? I mean, right, but does this increase monopoly power in the area of refrigerators, which is I think what Alex Tabarrok is trying to say? Huh? Yeah. See, I I don't have the I don't know I don't I I can't disambiguate. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. And, and because I, it, it, like okay, so like having third party apps doesn't really seem to affect whether or not you're the monopoly provider of like the OS, right? At least I think I think like what he's saying is, for example, if you buy. Like, are you going to now be more likely to buy a refrigerator from Samsung? Oh, because you're locked into the, like, the Samsung uh, refrigerator app. And you trust that that's going to get the, going to work with your other devices and get the updates and, you know, rather than buy it from some other company that might have an idea for a new refrigerator. Right. I I mean, I can see that being a a modest pressure, but only in the, you know, in the ecosystem of other pressures. Because, yeah, I do think like a, a good enough feature or you know, just another company that's of similar size would get me to choose it over. But yeah, I could see if it was just like a marginal choice between like, you know, a a brand new brand that I'm not certain is going to be here next year and Samsung, which I'm pretty sure will be. I might go with Samsung. Right. I I mean, the other thing on his list here of durable Mm -hmm. goods, aside from cars and refrigerators is a house, which is an interesting (laughs) one. Um, Obviously house to call it a durable good almost seems like an understatement, but I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, economics of houses are so weird too because there's so much distortion and 
the market. I, I think what we'd be talking about here are maybe your sort of general suite of smart house features that, you know, are sort of separate from the, the, the land structure. and the property that, you know, makes up the house. I would think, I mean, those things could be bundled, I suppose. I mean, it could come, you could buy a house that's pre-installed with things. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously like it, to the extent that you have to put a lot of infrastructure in place, that's very costly to actually install. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you want to create a true smart house, I mean, you need that to be durable. I mean, you really don't want it like five years later to have to like pull stuff out of the walls of your house to like upgrade to a new smart system. I mean, you right. need that thing to work in this service way. Right. Um, and I think, you know, when it comes to house expenses, I mean, people are used to paying for those things. And I, I, I don't know that this, it seems pretty plausible to me in that space that you would have. It depends on whether there's like a, just a suite of standards that everybody adopts that makes right. everything work together. If there is, then I think we would be less likely to see this being a monopoly problem. Um, but if it, if it becomes walled gardens, like, uh, like current mobile technology is, you know, if there's like sort of an Apple vertical and like a non Apple vertical or something like that, and they are very hard to get working together, then you could definitely see somebody getting locked in on one or the other. But anyways, yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting thought. I don't have like yeah. fully baked ideas on it, but no, that's interesting. But yeah. So, uh, next on our, our little list here, um, you saw, uh, some news about Walmart. Yeah, this is a really quick one, but just um, a follow-up on our, you know, automation and jobs ongoing discussion. Walmart, just in three states, is testing out uh, shelf-scanning robots. So I saw a picture of these. They look like what you would expect. I, I would describe them as like a 90s computer on wheels. Uh, they're kind of like beige and boxy, and they roll around, and they have a uh, an arm that has a light on it and a camera. And they're able to scan all at once the entire shelf as they as they roll by all of the barcodes and all of the items on the shelf. And then they can make a determination uh, about what needs to be restocked. Um, so, of course, uh, you can imagine a relatively short jump from this to machines that do the stocking. And then you've got a whole kind of category of Walmart worker that's not going to be, strictly speaking, necessary. Now, of course, Walmart is is touting this as, oh, it frees up our employees to do more of what they do best, which is greet people and sell things to them. And certainly at this moment, that does seem right to me that those are the things you want humans doing. But I could see both of those things eventually getting subsumed as well. So um, it's just, you know, I mean, not a big point to make about it or anything, but just it's interesting to see uh, such a large category of actual worker in a retail space like that you know not in a factory or a a warehouse you know coming face to face with the a large large employer testing out um a technology that could replace them yeah yeah when 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 companies like walmart start adopting these things you know that's that shows a the beginnings of a shift it's like when mcdonald's finally has a burger flipping robot in like a real restaurant you know that's gonna be a big deal because it just represents that Oh, this has become a choice now. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Uh, not yeah. that it's necessarily like gonna completely take off at that moment, but just oh, that's now an option. One, one of the biggest players is 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 on board now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is at least considering it. And if you know, if if McDonald's does decide to replace all their burger flippers with machines, even if they keep other employees around, that would significantly impact the world. You know, uh, um, same with Walmart. So yeah, that's it with that. 
Um, you had another small one, and I think maybe this will be the last thing we talk about today. Okay. Um, but I wanted to discuss status. Um, a little bit before the episode, you mentioned something you saw to me, and I had some thoughts about it as well. Okay, yeah. So let me just set this up, and then I'll, I'll toss it over to you. you okay. Okay, so I, I just I was reading uh, one of my favorite Twitters is Julia Galef's Twitter, and if you're not reading it, you should be. Uh, there's just excellent discussion on there all the time. And she quoted somebody, uh, his name is Jeff Kaufman, um, talking about status in subcultures on the internet. And this, I thought, related to something that we've discussed before, which is status is one of those goods that doesn't, in a fundamental way, get less scarce. Um, yeah, and we can tie this a little bit into what we were just talking about. So we were just talking about, you know, the, the constant progress of automation of, of robots taking jobs from humans and things like Walmart checkers. Um but uh, many, many episodes ago, we did a pretty detailed rundown of things that stay scarce, meaning like things that would still be valuable even in a world that had full automation. And, you know, you can you can speculate really far-fetched things like being able to print matter and so on, that even if you, if you have these really far-fetched, uh, advanced, uh, futuristic utopian scenarios that there's still some things that humans want that are scarce that might drive an economy. Um, and one of those fundamental things is that's, is status. I mean, even in this uh, post-scarcity wonderful world, uh, people are still arguably probably going to be driven by status and the need to be uh, you know, higher ranked right, or recognized respected by, their... by other people. Right, right. Um, and uh, competition for that could drive all kinds of you know market possibilities and, and one of the reasons that that's a scarce good that you is kind of irreducible is that it's traditionally thought of as a positional good right like it's it's sort of zero sum right like we can't like if there's a ranking system where we're all higher ranked than someone else and lower ranked than other people me if i increase my rank that lowers your rank right right, right. and and at a local level that is true but the point that this guy was making is that that that's it's not a single monolithic society with one ranking system. That's not really how we perceive the world. Instead, we sort of perceive our ranks within various groups that we belong to. And uh, therefore, if you belong to some kind of subcultural group, uh, whether that's a fandom or whether it's a community that's interested in technology or rationality or, you know, a, a, a dodgeball league. It doesn't matter what it is. If Local you go anime club. Yeah, exactly. If you're in any kind of like subcultural group or if you're a punk uh, in the 70s or a, a raver in the 90s or something, then then you care much more about the hierarchy within that group uh, than you do about your, your, your global hierarchical position. And because of that, um, and because of the related fact that subcultures are easier to aggregate and be a part of when you have the internet, because you can find folks who like whatever esoteric thing you like uh, more easily and communicate with them, that uh, we are actually in a place where we can make new status out of nothing without deflating um, the value of other people's status by creating it um, in a subculture. So allowing people to be basically big fish in small ponds. The, the idea being that now with the internet, we can have an almost infinite number of small ponds, which means that because you can belong to more than one group uh, in your life, you could be, everyone can be the big fish in some pond somewhere. And then they're also members of other larger ponds in which they're various sizes of fish. Uh, you know, so, um, that might be a way that everyone can experience the positive effects of feeling some status. And achieving that through 
new communications technology. Right. right? I mean, this that, is enabled by technology. That's yeah. the that's the shift. I mean, it doesn't. Um, it means that you know the ability to create these smaller uh, subcultures is kind of new. I mean, at least on this scale. Right. It's that. Yeah. It was. It was harder before and and rarer, and now it's easier and less rare. And so that's a way that technology might actually be eroding the scarcity of statusness, but not in a direct way, in a sort of indirect way. It's a little bit related to that Andy Warhol saying of like, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Although I think that still shows the mass media mindset because I would amend it to be like, maybe in the future, everyone will be famous to 15 people. Like, you know, if there's this infinite number of ever smaller pawns, like you've got to be the most famous person in one of them. So if you're just willing to kind of like go down the chain, you will be able to find that place where you can hold sure. the status you desire. Um, and I think that that's cool. I mean, I, I, had, I had not thought of that. And I thought that was an interesting. I do think yeah. it's interesting. I don't, I mean, in some senses, I don't know if it changes the fundamental picture that people will still want more status um, and still compete. I mean, certainly with there's a competition still within any given pond sure. um, among people that actually care. Sure. Um, so, uh, but I mean, you know, the idea that you could be low in some ponds and high in others and that you're, um, someone else, you know, could be the inverse. Um, you know, we each have our own little, little fiefdom there. Um, and you know, it's not clear that, uh, it's, you know, as zero sum, I guess. I mean, uh, it's still zero sum locally within each pond, but it's not, but then the, the creation of new ponds makes it not zero sum. That's what the makes it ultimately the, it's just, if you're not getting the status you want in the ponds you're in, the ability to just make a new pond is extremely high. So you just do that. And then you have a better chance of, you know, ex- uh, getting status in that pond. I mean, the other thing that this made me think of is the, the mathematical idea of in, intransitivity. People who've taken geometry back in the day, um, obviously real mathematicians will know exactly what I'm talking about, but people who are passingly familiar with the transitive property know that it basically says that if, you know, A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C, therefore A is bigger than C. So, you know, it describes a system that's linear where each thing is positionally higher or lower than something else. Yeah. So that would be like a traditional transitive situation. But of course, like uh, many situations are intransitive. The easiest example is paper, rock, scissors. Right. Right. Um, Where, you know, rock beats scissors, scissors beats paper and paper beats rock. And so, like, that is a much more complicated scenario. And that's true in many instances of life. You see that structure. Right. Um, and so, like, that's what this multiple small pawns to me is implying. You know, I might be, you know, I mean, I guess one way you could put it is, like, I'm respected by person A, right? And I respect person B. And person B respects person A, Right. So it's like a triangle. Right. Right. Where we each respect each other, but we're not necessarily respectful of the person that respects us. Right. Right. You sort of almost by definition, you have a little less respect for that person because you're higher status than them. Yeah, exactly. So you're like sort of look down on one person. You look up to another person, but because they're not the same person, it creates this triangle. So you apply this equilibrium where all three people have equal status in some sense. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and they're they're sharing equally in in the available status. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean that that's a stable equilibrium. I mean, it doesn't mean again, like I, getting back to human nature and just like status seeking in general. Right. And nobody is saying, by the way, that this will eliminate like low statusness. Right? right. Somebody may still be at the bottom of every pond they're in. 
Um, that may still happen to them for whatever reason, but it does seem to increase the total stock of status available, which before I didn't really think you could do because it, yeah, it did seem like it was all just zero sum. Um, so that's very abstract. Yeah. Uh, this has been an interesting episode. Uh, let us know if this... I hope it's been an interesting episode. Well, it's, it's, been, an inter- it's been interesting to do. <laughs> uh, it's been kind of an experiment. Uh, we've been jumping all over the place. Uh, let us know if this was if this worked for you. I think um, I, the good thing is that in the process of doing this, I got some ideas for longer episodes. So if we didn't mention... Uh, if you're a listener and you suggested something and we didn't talk about it, uh, that may be because we're filing it away for a future episode. Hopefully that means we're, yeah, we're studying it. We're trying to figure out enough about it to say something. Um, but anyways, until next time. <laughs> I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.